Welcome to Wharton Tech Talks, everybody. This is your host, Sophie White, and we are super excited to be discussing all things AI today. Co-hosting with me today is Wharton Tech Club's co-president, Stephen Varghese, who is going to intro today's guest. Thanks, Sophie. Hello, everyone. Our guest today is Professor Karthik Hosanagar. Professor Karthik is the John C. Howard Professor of Technology and Digital Business and a professor of marketing at the Wharton School. If you're a student at Wharton, I highly recommend his course, AI for Business. He has also written a book on the topic, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence, a fantastic read and a great primer on the industry. Welcome, Professor. It is so good to have you here with us. Hey, thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Thanks, Professor. So we at the Wharton Tech Talks have been really looking forward to this conversation. AI and machine learning, as we know, is an ever-evolving space. I'm sure it's changed from the time we took the course with you. To kick things off, it would be great to just get your views on the AI landscape today. You know, who are the main stakeholders and what are the new and exciting areas that you find in this space? There's foundational AI infrastructure that everyone needs to use, irrespective of which industry you're in, right? So if we look at that, the main players there are the big tech companies. So you have... Google with its Google Cloud and lots of uh, AI solutions, you know, Google's TensorFlow and its cloud AI solutions are clearly a big part of that. Amazon, again, is another key player there. Obviously, with Amazon Web Services, Amazon is a pretty important player in the cloud space. And then they overlay all of these ML tools. Um, they have software frameworks, like uh, several uh, products that Amazon has. You have... Besides Amazon and Google, uh, Microsoft as another key player in as among the horizontal players. Now, all of these players I think of as providing some of the AI hardware and software infrastructure. The other key portion of that infrastructure is the data infrastructure. So who's actually helping you store the data? And that's where all of the cloud players, uh, like you know, the data warehousing players come in. That includes, again, companies like Amazon with Redshift, Google, but also newer players like Snowflake. So this is who I think of as the horizontal players, meaning if you're doing anything in AI, you probably need a data infrastructure. You would go with Redshift or you know Snowflake or one of these solutions. You would then probably do all of your AI computations on the cloud and you will use the infrastructure of one of these players most likely. But in the vertical space, depending on which vertical you choose, um, healthcare, finance, retail, and so on, there are individual players. I don't know if that kind of gives a sense of the lay of the land. I will additionally add over here that, you know, the the other interesting piece of the, the VCs who are investing a lot in AI. So there you can, you have uh, players like Anderson Horowitz, uh, Benchmark, Excel, you know, and in fact, for the most part, any and every top tier VC has a partner today who's got an AI mandate. So I think you mentioned a lot of important players and then a lot of different industries. So you have the Googles and the Amazons and the Snowflakes who are using AI from a data perspective. And then you have the domain players that are using it in terms of like healthcare or autonomous vehicles. And then on top of that, you also have machine learning, natural language processing. So with all of that, like what area of AI is the fastest growing? 
I think right now AI is just getting so much attention that there isn't an area of AI that isn't growing. I mean, I think whatever you pick, there's the change is quite rapid. Clearly, if I were to pick something right now for me, it would be the some of the changes that are going on in natural language understanding. Clearly, there's been a lot of hype in the last six months around GPT-3, for example, uh, from OpenAI, which really pushes the envelope in terms of uh, natural language understanding. So that's a really interesting area. We've seen a lot of progress in image recognition over the years. So I wouldn't call that out in particular. But I think even if you look at the change from OpenAI's GPT-2, which was their previous uh, natural language sort of infrastructure toolkit, to GPT-3, the, the, the changes are quite dramatic. The improvement is quite dramatic. So, so language is one area that I'll, uh, that I'll pick out as, as one that is really improving rapidly. And what are some applications of the natural language processing? So I know it exists in Alexa and Google Home, but beyond that, like what are some other applications either within a certain business or a different industry? Yeah, they're emerging. I think uh, they're not fully established, but I think if you look at the, some of the more practical ones, there are startups that are trying to use GPT-3 to automatically create legal contracts, for example. So if you have a conversation recorded or you have an email exchange, you could construct contracts based on that. There are companies that are also trying to create more simple interpretation of legal contracts. So you take a legal contract and it's, you know, any, any of us who have seen a legal contract and has seen like a 20 page contract and you're trying to make sense of it, you know, it's not for, uh, you know, even with IQ of 200, I don't know if you can pull it off. So those are tough. So uh, some of these tools are trying to take those contracts and convert it into plain English. I think that's another interesting one. So those are on the more practical side. And then there are the super creative ones. I've seen a tool that's trying to uh, trying to take this into creative writing. So for example, trying to help screenwriters write screenplays or, or writers write short stories. And again, over there, the simple plain vanilla practical version of that tool is simply a writer's aid. So a writer is writing and and you've got a brainstorming tool that is telling you where the story can go in the next act. And it might give you 10 versions and you might pick one, you might make edits and it might suggest the next, next paragraph and so on. And of course, that's the more practical version. And then there are the, the crazier versions. I'll call uh, it crazy because I don't have a better term for it, but it's not as crazy as it sounds in the long run which is that, you know, an entire movie story or entire novel written by a GPT-3, right? People are trying to do those kinds of things, which today, if you look at the output of those, they wouldn't compare to a screenplay written by a top Hollywood writer or to a novel written by a accomplished writer. But who knows where we'll be in 10, 15 years. So I think very mundane, boring things like legal contracts to very creative <laughs> things like, uh, you know, stories and novels and so on. Absolutely. And speaking of legal contracts, so think if we have any lawyers, anybody in the legal industry listening in, they're all reeling in their boots, thinking about AI replacing them from a job perspective. And I think that that is an interesting application of AI and machine learning and all of these different subsets of AI where we're gaining a lot of efficiencies and deep understanding of where technology can take us. But 
also potentially replacing some of these jobs that have historically been the foundation of society. So what do you see as the impact of AI on jobs, the the pros and cons? Yeah, so it's interesting. As of now, there isn't yet strong evidence that AI is creating unemployment at large in large scale, right? So most of this is like, where are we headed? And in my opinion, and where we are headed, there are certain tasks that we currently have humans doing. And, you know, in my mind, there's no doubt that those jobs are in a lot of trouble. You know, the computer scientist Jeff Hinton famously once said, there's no need for us to train radiologists. And then he backed out of that statement. But I, I believe in the spirit of that statement, though not literally what he said, which is that a lot of radiology, which is looking at images and matching them and doing pattern matching, AI systems will increasingly do 70, 80% of what radiologists do. You know, driving again now, you know, as driverless uh, software and driverless cars get better, you know, lots of driving jobs, that's millions of jobs in the US, they'll be in trouble as well. So yeah, I I think there's no doubt that there is an impact on jobs. Mostly the way I think of it is that I think the more obvious, the more mundane tasks are automated. So the people who are engaged in the more somewhat manual, somewhat mechanical, repeatable tasks, those jobs are in in trouble. But for the most part, uh, certainly if you look at an information worker, I think the way I'm looking at it personally is that It's a collaboration tool for me, uh, which is that it takes away the mundane part of what you do and allows you to focus on the more creative things, uh, which hopefully allows us to do things better. So again, going back to the radiology example, the way I would think about it is that, you know, a lot of the obvious cases where people spend time on looking at the images, maybe taking down notes, recording their notes and all of that should hopefully be automated and and the radiologists are now focused on the the harder, the more interesting, the more complex cases and so on. And I think at the heart of this, really it comes down to modern AI today is for the most part machine learning. Modern machine learning is for the most part supervised machine learning. And what all that means in practice is that essentially today's AI looks at historical data where the same task has been done lots of times in the past, looks at patterns and then learns to pick up those patterns. So for something to be automated by AI, it must be the case that this task is done by lots of people, lots of times. We've got a lot of training data. So the more creative tasks we do, which are not repeatable, I think it's very hard for today's AI to come anywhere near it. And so I think those kinds of jobs and tasks are, are very well protected. Professor, that's that's quite interesting. And I, I think like one of the things that I always thought about was like, you know, in the future, AI is going to take up most of my jobs. And so like, why even bother studying? <laughs> so one of the things you spoke about is that creative tasks are going to still stay, right? But when we talk about GPT-3, for example, and you talk about like, uh, you know, an algorithm being able to churn out a whole novel by itself or come up with screenplay, you know, we're looking at even AI taking on creative jobs. So what is the future when we take this into consideration? Yeah. So when we talk about the future, I think we have to qualify it. When we say future, are we talking about the next 10 years? Are we talking about our lifetime? Are we talking about our children's lifetimes? Are we talking about several generations later? The reason I say that is, you know, when we talk about creative tasks, I think today AI 
is nowhere near, even when it does well at creative tasks, it's mostly not truly creative. It meets certain bars of creativity, meaning it's able to look at things that have been labeled as creative in the past, and it's able to do that again. But our inherently, our definition of creativity is when we see something that is non-obvious, that we haven't seen before, that's harder for today's AI to do. Not that it's impossible. I'm just saying it's harder. So it is indeed true that AI has successfully, you know, even created art that resembles the, you know, the classics. The, I mean, the the the, the famous uh, Renaissance painters. It is true that AI has created short stories that mimic styles of people in the past because it can look at all of that data. But in terms of creating something fundamentally new, we aren't there today or in the next few years. Question is, when will we get there? There is this interesting survey that you guys uh, and many of your listeners will know about. AI experts, when will we have human-like intelligence? And I, I, you know, I might be misquoting the exact numbers, but I th- I'm sure I'm directionally right, which is that the survey, and these were some of the top computer scientists, said something like, you know, 2030 or 2035. 25 is not that far off, so that, you know, an AI system should be able to do more or less whatever a human is doing. So, so yeah, so again, coming back to your question, most of what I was saying was like with a five, 10 year mindset. Now, if we're talking a more, taking a more philosophical view or a policy or a regulatory view and asking, how do we build a country or a society for the next hundred years? Yes. You know, I'd be nervous if I'm, if I were trying to make that kind of a planning decision. And I think that's where we then need to think about um, how do we carve out a role for uh, human intelligence, human creativity going forward and use AI as an enabler for everything we do. Well, uh, yeah, I think that's that's something that, you know, really, you know, when I try to think about what the world will look like, it's some, you know, something that I'm usually clutching at straws. But what does 2075 look like in your mind? What will the world be like uh, in the year 2075? Yeah, 2075. Now, that's a tough one. You know, I'm, <laughs> I'm reminded of a couple things when I say that. So I'll, before I say anything, I'll qualify it with this. I'm reminded of a few quotes. There was a quote I read attributed to, you know, Thomas Watson of IBM, who once said that there's a worldwide market of maybe about, uh, I forget the number, two computers, five computers or something like that, he said. And, you know, this is one of the pioneers of computing. Um, so these kinds of 75-year predictions, especially, uh, or sorry, 55-year predictions, especially with the rate of change, it's tough. But personally, I do believe that, you know, when nine out of 10 computer scientists are saying that, there is merit to that. I do believe that a lot of things we do today could be automated, will be automated. And hopefully we create a society where, you know, instead of having tens or hundreds of millions of jobless people, we instead are in a world where most of us have to work four or five hours a day and no more because with just four hours of work, we are way more positive and optimistic about where we are going with this. Speaking of working smarter and not harder, I think that's what a lot of us at Wharton strive to do. What are some applications of AI that you've seen improve processes and and work streams within these different corporations. So we've seen Amazon become incredibly efficient by using AI, machine learning, and robotics to make their shipping and transportation logistics 
incredibly efficient. And especially in a time now where there's a global pandemic and, and everything is up in the air. So what are some of the applications that have been the most impactful in terms of AI making processes more efficient? You know, the stuff that gets the media headline attention are the sexier, fancier things like, you know, a driverless car or, you know, uh, a system beating Go player and so on. But there are the more mundane applications, which um, I think where they add a lot of efficiency. One that I'm reminded of just off the top of my head is uh, if you look at insurance, for example, there's a lot of uh, paperwork and the traditional insurance company is very labor intensive, process intensive, and extremely slow in terms of claims uh, processing and so on. And I think if you were to build an insurance company ground up today, you would build it very differently. And, you know, maybe one example one, one could look at is the new insure tech company, Lemonade. And they got started by first asking, what does the, what does the insurance consumer interface look like, right? So first they reimagined that process where you can get a quote in no time on a mobile app or on a website uh, and really uh, made the interface really simple. But that was day one. Once they started getting customers, they've been doing a number of things. You know, they do a lot lot of uh, fraud detection. Again, they have AI systems to do that. If you look at banks, banks are losing billions of dollars on credit card fraud, where credit card fraud was all about us reading through a statement, finding something that doesn't make sense, calling and disputing it. Versus today, when a transaction takes place, we get a text message right then and there asking, is this legit? And so that's system effectively mm-hmm. that's trying to match this to all past transactions awesome professor that's that's very helpful and i think this uh, landscape that you provided of the whole industry is is a very helpful context and i'm personally very excited to see what 2075 looks like at this point but uh, switching gears at this point one of the things that you spoke about when you were talking about the landscape was explainable AI. And even in your class, uh, you, you speak about the resilience predictability paradox. Um, so can you explain it for our listeners and, and what does it imply for the various stakeholders in algorithm design? Yeah, so if you look at it, it's, it's really at the core of it, one of the foundational questions in AI, which is still unanswered, by the way, is how do you create intelligence, right? And that's a tough question. There's so many ways you could try and create intelligence. You know, one of the early successful approaches was what was known as an expert system, which is a simple rule-based system. So, you know, my version of an expert system for, let's say, diagnosing diseases would be that I would go interview a bunch of doctors and ask them, give me the rules you use to diagnose diseases. And they might tell me, well, when a person walks in, if they have a, a cold and a fever, then I look at these sets of things. And if the fever has been there for over a week, then I maybe don't look at viral, but I start to think of bacterial causes or whatever. I'm making stuff up, but they'll have a set of rules that that you codify. And these systems were created in the 80s. Generally, they work okay, but were simply not comparable to a human expert. Days together, and you can give me all the rules and I apply the rule and that software will fail. That's because of tacit knowledge. And so then we switch to this world of machine learning, which is that instead of telling the system, you know, what's to be done, we will show it. So meaning that we will record data on humans doing tasks. So if you want to have a system recognize images, then we will have humans uh, recognize images. We know human will give the rules and say, this is how I recognize this person's face. But the human will just say this label, this is uh, Sophie, this is Ibrahim, this is Steven, this is Karthik and so on. 
And if you have enough data, the system picks it up. Now I just go in, see the set of rules and I say, oh, this system predicted that this person should not uh, will not pay back the loan and therefore should be denied because of this, this, and this. Now, if we switch now to the modern machine learning kind of approach, as these systems are learning from data, a couple of things have had happened. One is the data sets have gotten exponentially larger. So it's not easy for us to just comb through the data and say, oh, this was the portion of the data where the system learned some some way to make a prediction. And the second is that the algorithms themselves got complex. So you had very simple ML algorithms in the past. Now you have uh, what are known as deep learning algorithms, which are complex net neural networks that are trying to simulate the human brain in some ways. You know, the, the main point I make is that the expert systems are highly predictable because there are simple rules there, but they're not very resilient. If they face a new a situation that is not tied to the rules, they'll they'll fail. Machine learning systems, if you have shown them enough data, then they're very resilient because, you know, most likely any situation that the system faces, it has seen something like it or variant of it in the past and can act on it. But then um, even though it's very resilient, uh, it's not very predictable because you don't know the exact reason why it made some recommendation. Now, it starts to matter when a system is making decisions such as loan approvals or resume screening. And if you find out that a minority did not get a job or a woman applicant was not uh, called for a job interview, then you care about is the problem a bias in the training data that got picked up by the ML system or is, the, or is, is it that this person was truly not qualified? And that's why we need good explanations. AI research, which is sometimes called XAI, which is short for explainable AI, sometimes referred to as interpretable ML. But these areas are focused on how do you come up with explanations when the underlying AI system, meaning machine learning algorithm, is very opaque. Got it. Uh, Professor, that's quite interesting. And and thank you so much for providing all that context. I, I think when I think about human beings, like if we don't understand something, the ability for a human to trust it also goes down. So how does this work? And and what I mean by this is, you know, specifically the chart that you had showed in class, it, it was one of my wow moments where like a human's trust in algorithms varies with their sense of control. So could you please share your insights on this and what should people keep in mind while designing, you know, algorithms and especially ones that are customer facing, for example? Yeah, sure. I'll mention a couple things. One is that one is a broader sort of product design, product management question, which is what should the human AI interface look like? If you have a system that's highly competent, that is in fact even beating humans on average, do you fully automate that? Or do you need to have a human in the loop? So that's the fundamental question of control in my mind. And so, for example, there was a time where the Google driverless car, they had a, you know, in their internal tests, they had a steering wheel and their employees who are testing the systems can switch between the AI and the human control. But they observed that giving people control was actually hurting performance because once the AI was driving, people got used to this idea that I've got a highly competent automated system that's driving and they were starting to do uh, you know, various things like phone calls to, uh, you know, getting ready uh, in the car for the day at work and, uh, you know, shaving and these kinds of things in the car. 
but when they were taking back control, they were not switching on. They were still partially there. And so it was hurting performance. A similar example is that, uh, you know, when Facebook tried to give users more control over their newsfeed so that people can decide what shows up in their newsfeed. Facebook found that people were spending less time on their newsfeed. They were less, you know, clicking on fewer posts. Basically, they were changing the default setting to things they thought they wanted to see, but in practice, they didn't. And so they were not engaging as much. So Facebook, again, found that when it gave people control, it hurt performance. Now, in both these instances, giving people control also showed that people were happier. So you, even though they, the end outcome was worse, the car was less safe when people had control. Uh, people were not happy if they didn't have the steering wheel when sitting in the car. Uh, in, on Facebook, even though people were less likely to get posts that they were engaging with, they were happier when they had more control. So the question then becomes, how do you balance this desire for control that people have versus uh, the fact that when you give people control, they make things worse off. And there was actually a study done by my colleagues at, at Wharton. I have a few related studies as well, which is looking at what drives trust in uh, algorithms and trust in automated decisions. And generally, all these studies show that, you know, if you think of control as a dial, as you dial uh, control, uh, as you dial it so that people, users have more control, performance deteriorates quite rapidly. On the other hand, if you look at what drives trust, what we find is that, you know, giving people a little bit of control drives trust a lot. You don't need to give them uh, a whole lot of control. In short, and I wish I could show you that chart right now, the chart you refer to. But in short, our finding was that if you give people control and you give them too much control, what happens is trust is high, performance is really low. If you give people zero control, performance is really high, but trust is very low. But there's a sweet spot, and that sweet spot is actually very little control. And for lack of a better way to indicate it without having a chart, I'm going to call it something like 5% control. And what I mean by that is not a number, but the idea being you just need to give people a little bit control so that it gives them a sense of you know knowing that they're in charge, uh, but it doesn't hurt performance. So I'm generally in favor of a human in the loop partially because it drives trust, but also I think a human in the loop helps detect problems. Um, and so humans can play a really important role in terms of you know, detecting those issues and, and, and fixing uh, problems when they arise. Because at the end of the day, we should think about these AI systems as also being prone to failure. Usually on average, lower failure rates and better performance than humans in, in lots of tasks where they're deployed. But the difference being that they're operating at scale. So where a human failure has a limited impact, uh, an AI failure can have a huge impact. So for example, if you have a biased recruiter in an organization um, and that person has prejudices, uh, that might be affecting 500, maybe 1,000, uh, maybe even 5,000 job applications to that company. On the other hand, uh, if you automate all that and an AI system picks up that bias, and an AI system is screening a million job applications coming into Amazon, then you worry about that, even though it may be less biased than and that individual, uh, but because of the scale. So, you know, I think that's why I kind of argue for a human in the loop, uh, partly to drive trust, partly to detect problems when they arise. 
Yeah, I think this brings up a really interesting point about algorithms just because they become such a part of our daily lives. Social media is driven by algorithms. You have streaming services like Netflix and then basically any targeted ad is based off of big data and and these algorithms. So what do you see as the future of how companies work with algorithms as they're trying to find that sweet spot between, yes, I want to create a personalized experience for my users based off of all of their interests, but I don't want to feel like I am taking power away from them and that they're they're still in charge. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a tough one. You know, I, I think you, you mentioned like Netflix, you know, there was a study actually by data scientists at Netflix that showed 80% of the viewing hours people spend on Netflix were driven by algorithmic recommendations. Uh, at YouTube, it's something like 90% of the time people spend on YouTube is driven by algorithmic recommendations. You know, at Amazon, nearly a third of the sales are driven by algorithmic recommendations. So these algorithms are driving a lot of our choices. And if you think about it, who we are is ultimately just a sum total of all the choices we've made. You know, the books we read, the, the media we watch, the friends we meet, the people we meet, you know, their algorithms are driving even dating, you know, all important decisions today. So I think the, the question of losing control is a real one and a tough one. Personally, I think that, you know, it's not just the algorithms and algorithm designers. It's each of us as users who need, you know, we need to wake up to this. But certainly as far as the algorithm designers are concerned, you know, two principles I advocate. One is, again, the, the human in the loop. You know, a simple example of that would be something like, uh, you know, not many people are using Pandora uh, these days. More people are using Spotify. But I think any of these, uh, you know, there's a feedback loop where you can do a thumbs up, thumbs down um, and indicate that there's, you know, recommendations you're not happy with. Uh, again, another thing to add within algorithm design, good algorithm designers do this is to add a, an element of noise or randomness into the algorithm. Because if you're so focused on the data and just uh, trying to go based on that, there's a lot of other stuff out there that's interesting that we're missing out, that the algorithm is missing out. So periodically trying new things, you know, meaning the algorithm trying new recommendations and new decisions uh, is helpful. And I think ultimately, you know, even for us as individuals, we should each also think about how we break away from the uh, algorithm every now and then. Uh, it drives a lot of efficiency. We talked about efficiency earlier. So it clearly drives a lot of efficiency. I think none of us want to go to the, back to this world where to find a book, uh, you know, you need to go ask 100 people or go look for a bestseller list uh, or, or find music in those old ways. But at the same time, you know, breaking free from the algorithm and, and trying new new experiences, I think, is, is at the core of discovery and, and humanity in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. And we are running up on time, but we wanted to ask one last question before we move on to our closing question. And with all of the applications of AI and the evolution of the landscape and fast-growing aspect of the business as a whole, what would be your advice to entrepreneurs either trying to start a business in this space or um, you know, use AI to power their ideas? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I think AI clearly, clearly presents uh, huge innovation opportunities, and therefore there's a lot of excitement around it for entrepreneurs and investors. The, the advice I would give, and by the way, I have a full long medium post on this, but the one problem I see a lot of entrepreneurs running into is 
you've got a great idea, you want to go build the system, and then you get down to it and you don't have the data uh, to build your AI mm-hmm. system. And in my blog post, the example I give, which is actually from personal experience, is that three years or four years back, I kind of said, okay, you know, fraud, credit card fraud, banks are losing billions to that. If I can solve it, and it shouldn't be that complex to build an AI system if I have all of the data, then you know, imagine the amount of value you create and what a valuable company you can create. Of course, when I started going down that path, no bank would share you know, that kind of um, data with uh, a new startup. They're, they'd rather hire you know, 15 data scientists and build it internally. And so this is not just my problem. This is every entrepreneur's problem. You, how do you get the data? And I think, you know, again, my blog post goes into several strategies that, that entrepreneurs can use. I have five strategies in there. Uh, in the interest of time, maybe I'll mention just a couple. One strategy I advocate is figure out ways to build your product without the AI for it to add value to consumers uh, on day one. And so then once the consumers use it, you're collecting data and then building the AI over time. I mentioned earlier in our conversation, Lemonade, the insure tech company. If you look at it today, data is at the heart of that business. But on day one, it was all around providing a convenient, simple interface for people to shop for insurance. Once that was done and they had enough subscribers, now they're doing some really clever things with uh, with AI. I was telling you earlier that they've uh, you know, built these systems that are doing loan approval, uh, sorry, uh, insurance approvals and claim uh, approvals. Uh, you know, I, I recently read like a 90 96% of uh, first loss of uh, first notice of loss claim is, is processed through an AI system. So that's one, which is think about how do you get your service rolling without AI? Another one I'll mention is that there's a lot of alternatives available, including there are existing machine learning models that are pre-trained that you can download and then you do what's called transfer learning which is you take a pre-trained model and then fine-tune it to your needs so you don't need massive data sets for that you can uh, somebody else has created uh, an ai that's 90 percent there based on the massive data set now you take it and you customize it so if i wanted to build an ai system that's for flower uh, recognizing flowers from their photos I don't want to start from scratch. I might use a download and image recognition pre-trained deep learning system and then train it on a smaller data set of flowers. So use those. Also, you know, remember AI is not always, uh, doesn't have to be supervised machine learning. You can mm-hmm. want to go back to expert systems and build a rule-based system that's, that's okay to begin with. Uh, but then over time, you gather the data you need. So I think one has to get a bit creative in terms of how you solve the data problem. But I think the data problem is a very real problem that entrepreneurs face. Yeah, Professor, I think we can go on and on on this topic and and we're still scratching the surface, I believe. Uh, You know, but as we bring this episode to a conclusion, we have one question that we ask all our guests on What in Tech Talks. And, you know, given that AI is a technology that will change all all of mankind. I'm really excited to hear your perspective. But, you know, given your unique insights and perspective into the space, what is your boldest, uh, most interesting or unique prediction about how the world is going to be, say, five to eight years from now? Uh, We've already heard what it might be 70 years from now, but five to eight years from now, what do you believe in your heart will happen, even though it might seem like a moonshot to everyone else? Okay, interesting. (laughs) You know, by the way, uh, you know, the reason I find these questions hard is 
I don't like to play the prediction game. Uh, if I'm really serious about the prediction game, then I believe I should put my money behind it and go start a company uh, based on that. So <laughs> given that thought, I will mention something which may not be my boldest bet, but it's a bet that I'm putting money behind. Currently, uh, I'm on partial leave from Wharton building my own startup. And that startup is trying to build a new content studio. So we are, think of us making movies and TV shows. But we are getting down to this core question that is at the heart of the business, which is when you look at a creative idea, how do you decide whether this is something audiences will respond to? And this is an unsolved problem. There's this uh, you know, famous quote from a very well-known uh, screenwriter who said that nobody in Hollywood knows anything. Each time out, it's a guess. And that's very true. And the impact of that kind of decision-making is that Hollywood is so risk averse, even though it's in the business of creativity. At the end of the day, the kinds of stuff that gets made are franchises based on proven successful, you know, so you'll see a movie that has succeeded 10 years back, they'll make, uh, you know, sixth sequel to it. Or there's a famous comic book character, you'll make one more movie based on that. But, you know, reluctance to try new ideas and new stories. So what we are trying to do is build a way to use testing with audiences and data to take risks with content. Today's AI is generally good at things where there's a lot of historical data and you can go repeat that. But And that works for something like, let's say, radiology, where you can look at hundreds of uh, x-rays of fractured toes. And I use that because I have a fractured toe right now. Uh, and you can use those x-rays and then look at a new one and say, yes, this is a fracture. But creativity is different because I can look at thousands of screenplays and look at the successes and failure and make a decision based on that. But the problem is people don't want to see the movie that worked in the past. So to try and get there is today seems almost impossible. Uh, certainly, you know, I'm working on it, so I don't believe it's impossible, but it's still highly improbable. So uh, it's a tough one. Uh, but but I think I'm going to bet that AI will play a big role in creative tasks in 10 years, not displacing humans, like I said, but doing 80% of what human creativity is able to do today. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about AI. I could talk content for days, but unfortunately, we have to wrap up. So thank you again, and good luck with your company. Thank you, guys. Pleasure uh, talking to all of you. Thank you.